What's up, everybody? This is Ian from the From the Stands podcast. Before we bring you an amazing episode, we want to make sure before we get there that we thank all these servicemen and women out there for Remembrance Day and for our friends in the States for Veterans Day. Thank you all for your service. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the From the Stands podcast. We have a special edition ready for you. Sean, who's with us today? Well, we are very, very excited to introduce to you on this special Remembrance Day episode, Major in Artillery Branch of Army, Nick Barber, and his brother, Master Sailor, who works on weapon systems on submarines. Did I get that right, boys? Chime in. Yep. You're good to go for me. Yeah, I'm not going to get you. I'm not getting yelled at by a captain or whatever's higher than what are you guys? <laughs> no, nope, I'll get better. Perfect. Well, listen, I got to ask really quick. Have either of you ever done anything like this before? A radio interview, podcast, and do you guys even listen to podcasts other than ours? Chris, you go. Well, no. Uh, well, obviously the old Joe Rogan's a, a good one to start with. But uh, outside of that, no, I uh, have not been uh, part of the old uh, podcast thing so far. So virgin podcast virgin you too nick uh no i I listen to a bunch of different stuff all the time uh especially uh, driving around gives me something to do and uh about a month ago i was on a podcast for uh some financial advice about millennials that uh have a net worth of over a hundred thousand dollars so just kind of talked about my experience with the military and going for school and all that stuff well, if you give me $100,000, then I'll start taking your advice. But before we, we move on, I do want to apologize. We're not going to be able to know all the terminology. We, we do apologize. So from a sensitivity perspective, we're going to try. But we, we love a good story here. And you guys have two very good ones. And so, Nick, I want to start with you. So you are obviously a major in the Army. But why did you join the Army? How did this whole thing begin? All right. So, uh, yeah, I wish it was a completely altruistic thing where I felt that uh, I wanted to serve Canada. Uh, but uh, where it initially started was uh, I was looking for a way to pay for university. Uh, so I didn't uh, have any money in the RESP or anything like that. And I didn't want to go 60K in debt. So I started looking around and found out about the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. And they have something called the regular officer training plan. So the deal is, is that they pay for your university for four years, and then you owe four years of service after the fact. So uh, at the time, I was actually thinking that I'd probably like to become a police officer or something. So I figured this would be kind of a good fit where I could get some experience uh, doing army stuff. And then once my five years of uh, service was done, I'd be 28 years old and I could get out and uh, become a police officer. So that's that's where the idea initially started from. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, four years of school and five years of service. Uh, I was loving the job uh, and uh, still having fun. So I've stuck with it. So I'm up to 18 years now and can retire uh, at age 45 with 25 years. That's that is pretty incredible though. You've been at it this long. So Chris, I I have to ask you the same question because again, we find, you know, this origin story of how you guys got started because you guys really both have had pretty epic careers. So we 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 got to ask the same, Chris. How'd you get started? Uh, yeah. So Nick joined uh, four years after he joined. Uh, saw him up in uh, Kingston there too for his graduation. I was working uh, up on the where was I working? I was working up in North Bay, Ontario, building bridges. And uh, while I was up there, I almost got killed a few times. I was like, well, shit, this is dangerous. I'm going to go join the Navy. So uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I did. Uh, joined as a naval weapons tech uh, when you, uh, and the same thing. I, uh, you know, serving country and all that kind of stuff uh, before self was good. But uh, uh, I wanted the education because if you join as a naval weapons tech, one of their things uh, claimed to fame was that you could be an elevator mechanic or whatever afterwards. And uh, so I was like, well, yeah, I'll do my four-year stint or six-year stint in first. And then after that, uh, I'll get out and make the big bucks as an elevator mechanic. But, uh, yeah, the military has a way of keeping you. So that was, uh, uh, you know, and I like the water. Uh, once I got out to sea, I just, uh, I, I really couldn't see myself anywhere else. So I just, I just stuck with it for 
for a period anyway, until I got out. But uh, yeah. Because it's so it sounds like the water was sort of your calling. Because I was going to ask you, you followed in your brother's footsteps, but not exactly. So what, so was it the water that sort of, that's what drew you to the Navy? Well, I followed in so much that I joined the military. I didn't want to be a turd, so I didn't go as officer. I, uh, I wanted to have uh, an actual use in the military. So I joined the Navy and uh, actually became a technician. So uh, that was the first differentiating uh, point of where we kind of like, you know, tore off from each other. But uh, yeah, no, like back in back in the day, uh, like 2006 on to uh, 2015, that was a that was a Navy worth serving in. Like it was, you know, work hard, play hard. We had lots of sailing. I averaged about uh, what was it? uh for about three years they're average about 200 200 sea days a year uh you know it's when you're young single and all that kind of stuff that's a that's a good time <laughs> you know it make money and travel and see the world and do some pretty cool stuff anyway well, and i'm pretty sure I, he just I, didn't want to salute me either so i think that was probably <laughs> the reason why uh, he uh, went Navy <laughs> instead of the army so so because because that's the thing right i there, there's this family sort of I, I don't know if it's like a folk tale that you chose the Navy because of how gigantic you are. And for people that are listening, obviously you, people that are listening know my big brother, Sean is, you know, around six, six, and you are by far the biggest one in the family. So with, there's sort of like a, there's sort of like this folk story about the reason you joined the Navy is because of your height. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> no, the only truth was that uh, the uh, the Navy had the biggest and the best guns, and you got to travel the world, and uh, not Come you know on, they got to travel the world. You join you, you join because the only bigger target than you out there is the boat. <laughs> well, shit. The the main thing is is that uh, you know Nick got to travel the world to Afghanistan. <laughs> I got the actual travel travel the world, so it was uh, it, it was a different story. So the Navy was definitely the place for me. Uh, the boats are small. The submarines are smaller. It's uh, it's horrible, uh, but you know, size. Yeah, my size has worked against me more than it's worked for me in the navy. That's for sure. But <laughs> well, uh, you, that's to, all right. To kind of bring things full circle, what we have not mentioned is every we're all family here. So you know, Nick and Chris are brothers. Uh, Ian and I obviously are brothers, and we're cousins. So all of on on our mom's side, both of us. So we are family. So we, we have a few jabs back and forth, obviously, as we've known each other. Well, you guys have known us our entire lives and we're younger, so better looking, well, but whenever you let's, to show up, yeah. <laughs> but let's, <laughs> let's get into Chris, you started hinting at, you know, kind of some of what you have done, but Nick, I, I want to throw it back to you here. You know, you mentioned why you got into the army, but in, before we get to your tour to Afghanistan, you know, what was that early process like? Was it, you know, you mentioned that you, why you got in, but you did stay. And, you know, what were some of those experiences like early? Yeah, so, uh, like, early on, uh, joining the Army was a little less uh, scary as well because, you know, Canada was known as a peacekeeping nation uh, before things kind of really kicked off with Afghanistan. So, you know, I figured there's a pretty good track record. We haven't been to war since uh, Korea. Uh, so, you know, chances were that, this would, would probably be a pretty safe endeavor. Uh, and all that changed pretty quickly. Uh, I was at the University of Windsor at the time with my application in for the military college. And then uh, that's when those, uh, those passenger jets uh, flew into the Twin Towers and, and everything kind of changed. So, uh, but even when I uh, transferred to the military college in 2002, uh, we weren't full bore into Afghanistan yet. It wasn't until uh, we were, you know, I was in my third third year, fourth year that we started sending troops for the combat mission in Afghanistan. And uh, so the mentality in school really started changing uh, about the midway point as we all started realizing like, hey, if, if you're in the army, uh, you're almost for sure going to end up in Afghanistan. And uh, so, you know, that kind of made it uh, a lot more real for us. And then uh, so so those summers, uh, the way it works is like you're, you're in school during the school year, but then in the summertime you, you uh, go away usually to uh, New Brunswick to uh, do army training. So all those courses carried a lot more weight and uh, you know, understanding where you were going to end up at. So, so that's, that's kind of how it started. Uh, we definitely, uh, 
you know, it kind of changed priorities a little bit. Uh, school became a little bit less important to me, uh, going out, having a good time, uh, you know, not to be too uh, melodramatic, but just the whole idea of, uh, okay, I'm probably gonna end up in a war zone. So might as well have some fun now just to make sure that uh, I get my uh, good times in before something potentially bad could happen. Uh, and then after graduation, it was uh, straight to the training base in Petawawa, Ontario, which is about an hour and a half west of Ottawa. And uh, then we started pretty much right away. Uh, I had to do some additional courses that I could get qualified to deploy. Uh, so I became uh, a forward observer for the artillery, which means I would go on uh, patrols with the infantry. And if we got into trouble, call in artillery strikes on uh, enemy positions, as well as uh, I had some training uh, to uh, call in airstrikes from uh, Canadian, American, and other allies uh, fighter jets, uh, bombers, and uh, helicopters. So so pretty much the first four years after graduating was all just courses and additional training to get ready to go uh, with the final deployment uh, happening in, in uh, starting in May 2010. So as your recruitment process is getting underway, you, you mentioned that for four years, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of how the process was going. It, you moved to Petawawa, right? Yeah, after graduating. Yeah, when, when after graduating. Yeah. So, what's the timeline of when you're doing everything there to actual deployment overseas? So, for some of my classmates, they went within a year. Like they went pretty much right out the door because uh, they had all the courses done that they needed. I was initially slated to go uh, two years after graduation. Uh, but then they, they changed up the job they wanted me to do. So I had to do a bunch of extra training to get ready for that. So it ended up being four years after graduation before I deployed. And what was the job they wanted you to do? Uh, so initially I was supposed to go over, uh, so for the artillery, we have 155 millimeter howitzers called the M triple seven. And what you need is you need officers on that gun line to control what the soldiers are doing as far as the actual firing of those guns. So that's one job that you can do, and that's usually the lower level job uh, for artillery officers. And then the next step up is what I was talking about earlier was the forward observation officer, or FOO uh, for short. And we're the ones that get attached to infantry or armored units, and we direct where that fire goes. So we call back to the gun line and say, hey, we need X number of rounds at this position. They'll shoot... Uh, we, we call it adjustment. So they'll shoot around where it lands. You have to adjust it so that it, cause it's not precise. Uh, so you adjust it onto the target. And then once it's on target, then you call down, you know, fire for effect. And then they'll, they'll fire a 20 round volley to uh, decimate whatever's there. Decimate just giving away trade secrets. Chris, <laughs> Chris, let's jump back to you here, man. You know, you, you obviously you enroll, um, you, you go through your initial training. Is it like, all right, man, onto the boat you go. Or is there, you know, a transition period? What's going on with you in those early days? Uh, yeah. So after uh, after boot camp, or I guess it's called BMQ, you, uh, I went to Newfoundland. Uh, sorry, I went to Halifax, and uh, I went there for about a year. And after that, I got transferred over to uh, Newfoundland for two years to do a. Uh, it was called the NCSTTP, Naval Combat Systems. Ah, shit. engineering training program uh technical training program and uh so anyway that was uh i got a uh diploma of diploma of technology in electromechanical engineering uh from uh Holy Marine Institute of newfoundland and uh then after that two years there then i did another about a year and a half or so on uh back in halifax between halifax and uh uh victoria uh, training on all the weapon systems that they have, uh, basically trainers set up in the actual bases. So I think I did about eight or nine months in Halifax, and then I got sent over um, because the uh, they essentially had two different uh, main guns, one for the CPF, which is our main boats now, and then one for the uh, old destroyers that we had. So the destroyers had a 76 mil, and the CPS have a 57 mil. I was slated to be a destroyer gunner. So I had to get flown out to uh, Victoria. I did my training on the 76 mil. And uh, about, I think it was about two weeks before my course is supposed to end. They came up and said, hey, Barbara, 
uh, get ready. You're writing your test tomorrow. I was like, the fuck? Okay. Uh, like, yeah, write your test tomorrow. And you got 48 hours notice. You're getting sent to Guatemala. Uh, pack your bags. What if I fail? Well, you're not going to fail. Go. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So uh, <laughs> ultimate trust. Did all my shit. And uh, yeah, then I was on a plane out to uh, Guatemala. Uh, then uh, jumped, the, jumped the plane there, got to a uh, got to a hotel and then uh we waited for the uh the convoy to come up and grab us because apparently there was massive floods in guatemala that year and uh it washed out all the mudslides washed out a bunch of major highways and now there's bandits rolling roaming around the one highway was left and they were like robbing and all that other kind of shit so they had armed guards bring us over to my boat got on the boat and then i started my first sail which was super glorious because uh, as soon as I got there, we uh, started hitting uh, hard sea state. And uh, so sea state is the the, uh, the height of the waves, essentially. So it wasn't horrible, but it was like 30 to 40 foot waves. And uh, Yeah, not horrible at all. Just the size yeah. of most homes. Yeah, that's fine. So essentially at that point, when you get to that point, especially after being in port for a few days, a lot of people get a seasick. So uh, seasickness usually lasts about two to three days for most people, regardless of uh, uh, who you are or whatever. Like some people just, they're going to get seasick for two or three days. It's just a known thing. Uh, so yeah, I remember just being down in the uh, in the galley, uh, sorry, not in the galley, in the mess, which is a mess is what we call like a little hangout spot. And so I'm sitting in the mess and the, uh, Someone pops their head and like, hey, who the fuck are you? He's like, I'm Barber. I'm like, okay, who do you belong to? I was like, I'm a gunner. I'm CSC, combat systems engineering. I'm like, all right, well, you're not my guy, but there's no one left. Uh, I need you to do something for me. So right outside the uh, the mess, there's a heads. My heads is a, a shitter, and they're like, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, this needs to get cleaned up. And people were puking in that nonstop for probably about six, seven hours. So I just sat there and I got my little, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Essentially, there was so much puke in that little area that I would get a little dustpan and I'd wait for the boat to roll, collect all the puke in this side. Oh my God. On my dustpan. And then I'd scoop up all the puke and throw it in the fucking shitter in the head. And then I'd flush it down and then I'd wait for the roll to go back. And I wait for it to come back, and then I just keep on. <laughs> all the while, people are coming in, and they'd be puking back into the fucking floor again, or on the. It just, yeah. So that was my first week uh, at sea. It was uh, oh. pretty awesome. I, I, I'm sure he uh, super loved not being an officer. You know, go text <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so I okay. So I gotta ask because you know you guys are sort of running us through how you got started all the way to first deployment so i have to ask and this is for both of you and nick you start can anything really prepare you for that first day where it's real like can any like does anything really prepare you or are you just sort of like deer in the headlights are you nervous are you anxious is now because for some people change is like really hard and this seems like something where you just they you can just be sent and you're gone is there anything that can prepare you for that no, it, it was terrifying. Uh, you know, we, uh, you start off, uh, we, we, we flew from, uh, we, we took the passenger uh, flights into Dubai. And then from Dubai, we got onto uh, the Hercules aircraft, which is the, the big transport uh, military aircraft. And that's what flew us into Afghanistan, into Kandahar airfield. So you're in this big plane uh everyone's just like in these tiny little seats and some people they didn't have seats they were just sitting on cargo strapping uh that was kind of strung between the walls and as you're flying into the airfield uh this giant transport plane starts doing like evasive maneuvers because they were worried about getting hit by rpgs on uh, rocket propelled grenades while coming into the airport so you're flying along and then they're just then you just go into a dive to get down as quickly as possible onto the runway. So that's your kind of like your initial like oh crap this is this is for real now we're we're here. Mm -hmm. And uh and I I recall you know 
we're, we're, we're getting off the aircraft. And as soon as they open the door is when that Afghan heat hit you for the first time, like a wall, it was 50 degrees and it was in a sandstorm. So like the sun wasn't even like, it was like the sun was blocked that day and it was still 50 degrees. So, uh, you know, so, so in this, in this sand that's flying around, it's uh, the best we describe. It, it's like moon dust. It's just this super fine powder. It gets into everything. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, like flour that you use for baking. Like it's just like that fine. So, uh, so, but you know, then just the army does its thing. So you get on the ground, you start uh, getting processed. So they're like, yeah, okay. You know, getting all your equipment, everything like that. They throw you in a, in a room where you have a bunk and, uh, so it's like, okay, yeah, this is where you're spending your first night. You have some briefings uh, to do tomorrow. And then, uh, you know, so for me, they're like, yeah, uh, you'll get your lab, which is our light armored vehicle. So the big eight wheeled uh, armored vehicles that uh, we rolled around in, in with the infantry and uh, the, the food parties. And uh, so we, we got our, we, we, we call them boats, uh, land, you know, land boats. So we got our boats the next day, uh, got all our gear land loaded up into them and, uh, then made the trip out to uh, the Ford op operating base or the FOB. So that was, you know, that was the initial, you know, 48 hours in, uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, then, yeah. And then once we got out to the FOB, uh, the uh, OC, the officer commanding of the infantry company, uh, I actually had the pleasure with serving with the first uh, female officer commanding uh, in an operations uh, major at the time, Eleanor Taylor. And uh she, she took control of all of us out there. Uh, so we had the infantry company, which comprised of about uh, 100, 120 soldiers. We had uh, two of the howitzers in the camp with us as well as, uh, and we had all the support. So engineers, mechanics, cooks, all that stuff. And there was also a contingent of Afghan National Army or ANA uh, that were stationed there with us. And uh, at the time, by the time 2010 had rolled around uh, Afghanistan, it had evolved to the point where we were partnering with the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police and doing uh, operations with them. So we'd go patrolling with them and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So that sounds terrifying, and I can't I can't imagine going through that. But I, I got to say, it's not a toilet bowl full of puke. So I got to come back to you, Chris. <laughs> okay, you, you're not reading the way. I don't know. Sand in all your shit is not a nice welcome for anyone. Neither of these sound great. I'm going to admit, okay, like, it, I think, you know, driving back roads on the, on my way to work, you know, during COVID sounds scary. This is ridiculous. But Chris, I, I got to throw back to you, man. You're on the plane to Guatemala. You know, this is something that you've, you're thrown into. Literally. What are you feeling? How, how are you dealing? Yeah, so I guess I should uh, preface this by saying, I guess it wasn't my first sale. I did a quick sale from, uh, I guess, uh, Halifax to Boston at one point. Either way, I know what a boat's like. And uh, I guess it's a little different from uh, the Army and going to Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, thanks a lot, boys, for having my brother tell his Afghanistan stories before I tell my fucking Navy stories, you assholes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, secondly, dicks. Uh, so, anyway, uh no, like uh, every time you go on a sail with the uh, with the boats, it's just nonstop. Like, yeah, sure. That one time when we got there, it's uh, it's actually pretty funny. When we got to Guatemala, uh, these that boat's been at sea for I think it was like six to seven months or so, and we were just getting on the tail end of that. So they were coming back from uh, South America doing a drug interdiction uh, tour. So basically, just going and finding any drug boats that were going to the states. We were helping the states and the actual, uh, not the Guatemalans, but the, uh, uh, shit, shit, shit. Uh, fuck. Plan, uh, plan, uh, the, basically uh, monitoring the traffic coming out of the Panama Canal. So that's where all that drugs uh, comes from, especially from Panama there. So uh, regardless, the uh, they were coming off the tail end of that tour. And so their actual tour had ended. So these boys were partying hard. These... Uh, they, they party pretty hard. Uh, a, a funny little bit about that was uh, me and my buddy, we were on the same course and we got sent to the, to the boat and he got issued. We all, we both got issued our racks. So our racks are beds inside the boat and there's 50 people per room uh, sleeping three high on a rack. And yeah, there's however many sets of 20 something fucking racks in there. 
I can imagine for someone your size, that's a little tricky. Oh well, yeah. You sleep. Uh, you sleep fetal position, and I kicked the guy that kicked uh, kicked the guy because I was uh, initially issued a uh, top bunk, but I kicked that person out so I can get a middle bunk because I can't I can't crawl up in there. That's just ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, my buddy got his rack, and uh, so just talking about first sales, and his rack uh, had just recently been pissed and so he was just fucking oh livid because his rack was just fucking just swamp. And so anyway, uh, we were up in our little gunner shop afterwards, our, our little technical spot where we fix a little shit. And uh, he's just fucking fuming. And the chief comes in. And he's like, hey, boys, welcome to the boat. You know, how's everyone doing? He's like, I was like, I'm doing great, chief. How are you? He's like, I was good. How about you? And he talks to my buddy and he's like, oh, fucking this place is fucking bullshit. He's like, listen here, you little fuck. You've been here for fucking goddamn 24 hours. These guys have been out here for fucking eight months. Fuck you. Do you think this is shit? I'll show you what shit is. <laughs> Chief, uh, Chief didn't know until like fucking, I don't know, fucking seven years later that Buddy's rack been pissed in, but he hated him ever since that fucking moment. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, the Navy's obviously a little bit different. Uh, you definitely learn by fire the same way, you know, just fucking. No, and, and but I do want to ask you this, though. You know, we're going to get to a couple. We do want funny stories, and you have provided us with no shortage. But, you know, on a, more, a little bit more serious note, is there one event, one moment where you look back, it just still burns in your mind as like, I can't, I can't believe I went through that. Not necessarily that someone's pointing a gun at your head, like we're talking Call of Duty, but I'm just saying in general, where it's just like, this was one of those crazy moments. Was it high seas? Was it, you know, in dispute pirates? Who knows? Like, is there something going on that you sit back and you go? <laughs> That's one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess there was one. Uh, well, there's a few, but anyway, uh, one that comes to mind was, uh, uh, shit. We were doing a anti-piracy tour in, uh, in the Gulf of Aden, which is just off the coast of Somalia. And while we were doing that tour, you know, we were going and we're boarding you know, all these little fucking, uh, like these dows. They're essentially like, they look like sailboats without a sail and they're just powered around. They just carry a bunch of shit and they're notorious for smuggling drugs or money and all this other kind of shit. Um, so anyway, we're doing that for, I think, three months. We were supposed to be there for about six or so months or seven months was supposed to be the entire tour and then russia invaded ukraine what was that 2014 i believe it was 2014 russia invaded ukraine so then um long story short we there's a lot of tomfuckery that happened after that but we got diverted up through the suez canal up into the mediterranean so he's sending the pride of the fleet to go call the Russian threat. So as soon as we get there, within about 24 hours, uh, 36 hours, uh, we had a Russian sub on us. And the Russian sub just constantly fucking pinged us for, I'm not sure if it was three days or it was a fucking week. I can't, it, it, I can't remember so much, oh but uh, it was just, like, it felt like every two to three hours, just like, like in the movies, you ever see the movies? It was like, Kring! uh, you could hear that reverberate through the boat and you could put your hand on the bulkhead, which is a fucking uh, wall. Uh, if you put your hand, you can like feel it shaking. And so that means it's a power shot. So when they're, when they use their sonars to do a power shot, it means it's active targeting. So, you know, they were just sitting there fucking with us for hours and hours on end. That was definitely a little bit uh, hair raising at a little point there, but it just, I don't like Nick, you can attest to it after you're, out in the water or out in the fucking desert after a while, you just kind of become numb to it and just do your fucking work and just put your yeah, head you like compartmentalize it. Do you like, okay, this is what's happening. This is how I'm going to handle whatever's happening. You don't, you don't really, do you think of the magnitude of what you're involved in as it's happening? Not really. My job is to be a technician. Yeah. So exactly. Uh, for me, I'm a technician. I'm not for Nick, Nick, you know, as far as the military goes, it's just point us where to go and I'll do my job. I'm just, it's wherever I'm doing my job, it doesn't change what my job is. My job is to make sure the gun is working and to fucking keep on, like, I'm not doing extra jobs. Like, it's not, uh, I'm not getting into the politics of anything. I'm not uh, dealing with any of that shit. As long as I just go to work, 
I do my time. I get my fucking uh, uh, my kit fixed and keep it operational. I get to rack out for a few hours. That's uh, you know, it's for for me anyway. It wasn't uh, just made it. And I, I don't know. I grew up a pit, you know. I, I you know, <laughs> uh, it, it never had that uh, nervous uh, aspect of my life uh, after uh, dealing with uh, life growing up. So it, it's been fine. Like, yeah, sure, shit, we might die, but we, we all die at some point. So I never really give a shit about that. That's that's incredible. I, I would su- I would say that's probably the attitude to have. Um, although I'm not sure, Nick. Uh, I, one thing I wanted, one thing I wanted to touch on with you was. Before we get to you know uh, a story, it's gonna be really hard to to top the the. the well, we have to transition to something really fun, but, but this but, is getting but, difficult. But I wanted, but I wanted to, to ask you because Chris was able to clarify a little bit about what his role was on the day to day. So something's happening, and he's like, "I got to focus on this and get this done." If you don't mind, do you mind sharing with us what your role would be like in a city, even if it's not? A situation as heightened as the one that Chris is describing. Uh, so, are, are you are you talking Afghanistan or just Afghanistan? Day-to-day? Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in Afghanistan, um, you know, our the day to day job of the infantry company I was attached to was basically to go out and do patrols of uh, the town that we were responsible for securing. So, what the game plan was in 2010 was they picked four or five. Uh, small towns that they designated as security zones where what they wanted to do was push the Taliban out of those towns, provide security. And then by doing that, the refugee, like the people that had been pushed out of their homes could come back to their homes. We could build some economy and, you know, show that this is what life could be like without the Taliban. Um, And by doing that, then you win the hearts and minds of the people because they can see that there's a better way to live than, you know, uh, under the fundamentalism. So in order to do that, we had to be out with the people. So in order to do that, our OC, uh, she had us go out pretty much daily patrols. So every time one of the infantry platoons went out, so there's usually 30 to 45 soldiers that would go out on these patrols. Uh, my, my, my foo party, which consisted of six people, we would split into two groups of three. So one of our groups of three would go out with every patrol. So basically I was out on patrol every other day for seven months. Um, and the way the Taliban fought at that time was they would try to in place IEDs, which are uh, improvised explosive devices in the ground, in the areas where they think that we might walk by. Um, and they'd put them in culverts underneath the roads to try to blow up our vehicles as they were driving by. And uh, they were they were very good at what they did because they uh, they started off just doing simple pressure plates. So they would just have you know a block of wood with some metal, and then when you drove over it or stepped on it, it would make a connection. So just a couple batteries could set off an explosive. And you know some of those could be pretty small, where you might just lose a foot or something like that but others could be daisy chained to might multiple. just lose a foot. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's all compared comparative. I guess, um, it's, I guess it's relative. Yeah. I but so, Sorry. some of these would be daisy chained to gigantic jugs of explosives. So if you, if the, if the forward person in the patrol stepped on the plate, it would set off a series of explosions behind, which could take out the whole platoon kind of thing. Um, and then they would go so far as as their technology got better, they figured out how to use cell phones to set these things off. So they wouldn't, you know, like they would have like they would have command detonated ones that they would have to have someone with, you know, a finger hitting a detonator. But then they realized that we could usually find them after the explosion. So they stopped doing that. They started using cell phones. So it kind of became an arms race there where, you know, so they would use cell phones to set off explosions. And then so we'd have to have uh, countermeasures, which would kind of disrupt phone signals in a little bubble around uh, your vehicle, but uh, they were too big to carry. So, so you know, the the point being is kind of similar to what, I guess what my point is, is kind of what some, Chris was saying is that at the end of the day, you know what your job is. The job was to go out and do these patrols. And uh, so, you know, you just kind of accept that, okay, you know what, 
this is my job. And if it's my time, then it's my time. But otherwise, I'm not going to worry about it. Because if you worry about it every day, that's how you end up with post-traumatic stress disorder and, and or whatever, right? So uh, now, you know, granted, I got very lucky where everyone in in my, you know, in the platoon, like nobody that I knew over there during that uh, deployment uh, ended up getting hurt. Uh, but uh, I do have, you know, some good friends that, uh, you know, an example of what happened was one of those daisy chain things. Uh, the first guy stepped on uh, a detonator. Uh, the first six guys in line were basically disintegrated. And my buddy was number seven. Um, and uh, so he, uh, he took a lot of shrapnel. It's, uh, it's actually pretty incredible that the medics were able to keep him alive. And, uh, you know, he's, he's alive and well today, but, uh, you know, lost an eye, uh, can only hear out of one year and he's in for the rest of his life, he'll have little pieces of shrapnel that will work their way out of his, uh, out of his body. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what we kind of signed up to do. And, uh, and we accept that as part of the risk of what we do. Yeah, that is, well, that is, uh, that's horrifying, man. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. And, and Chris, I know you've been through a lot of the same thing. And, you know, we're going to try and transition into some different topics here. But I got to ask you both really quickly. You know, you guys have both put yourselves on the front lines. And my, my only question before we move on to something else is, Nick, I'll start here. Do you want to say something about the medical professionals that you guys have worked with over the time? And, you know, I don't need specific examples, but kind of what they've shown you and, and how they've been able to act. And, you know, again, they're, they're trying to keep everyone safe, just like you're trying to keep us all safe. Yeah. So I, I'll say like, absolutely incredible. It, it's, I think I got extremely lucky with my career because the start of my career was with Afghanistan in full swing. So the whole weight of everything that the military could bring to bear was focused on Afghanistan. And, and there were Navy engineers that were deployed to Afghanistan to work on the counter uh, IED team. So they were out there as, as people to, to uh, dis disable the bombs when we found them uh, before they exploded. So uh, there were, there were Navy, Navy people who, who were divers uh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They were, so there were Naval personnel that died over there, the air force, they were the ones flying us around in Chinook helicopters and providing overwatch with the Griffin helicopters and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was a pretty incredible thing to see the, the whole weight of the Canadian armed forces working together uh, to accomplish a mission. And uh, you know, and, and like you mentioned, like, yeah, like the medics, you know, their job was to keep everyone, keep everyone going, but the technicians that were working on the vehicles, they would work all night to make sure that a lav, uh, or a tank get out the door the next day to go on patrol. Uh, like everyone, everyone just knew it was game on and it was all about accomplishing the mission. So it was, uh, it was pretty incredible to see. Chris, my man, same thing to you. I just want to give you an opportunity just with the people that are looking over you guys. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the PAs, the physician assistants and the, uh, the baby docs is what we call them as the, uh, their underlings. Uh, they're in, they're integrated with the boat real hard um i love them like uh, <laughs> uh obviously they do a lot more but uh than what i'm gonna touch on they're dealing with every single slip trip and fall on the boat and when you get in the higher sea states that's uh that becomes more and more uh prevalent uh, easily when you know you're up in uh, 70 foot waves and all that kind of stuff that shit just is bound to happen so they're always uh fixing broken fingers broken arms and dealing with seasickness and all that other shit. Uh, but my favorite one, I, I, I'm really pissed off that I don't remember her name, but uh, I remember going into the, uh, uh, into our mess one day and I was just, I forget, where were we? I think we were in Vancouver. I was just in Vancouver. We were, uh, we were escorting the Russian, uh, a Russian boat in because now that they're, they weren't part of NATO. So they, uh, if you're not part of NATO, you need to get escorted in uh, from a naval boat in order to come into Canadian waters. So we went out there and sort of say got a little, got a little shitty with those Russians that night. And uh, anyway, uh, we planned a, uh, a, a, 
a sporting event the next day. It was going to be volleyball, hockey, and soccer against the Russians to see who was the better of the sportsmen uh, uh, from the Canadians and the Russians. Come on. And, and this I, is coming from a 300-pound sailor right now. Here. <laughs> no, it's a 240-pound sailor back then. But uh, so hungover from drinking with the Russians because they wouldn't drink anything but vodka. So just slinging shots of vodka back. Not like your wheelhouse, hey, Chris? And uh, no, not anymore. Uh, you know, every time we trade a, a badge or a coin or something like that, it's a big thing with the Navy and the military as a whole is, Every time uh, you meet someone from a different military, you're always, you know, trading your your ranks or any kind of little coins you have, anything that you have that's a, uh, you know, like uh, oh shit, I don't have it on me here, but uh, anything, any kind of insignia, you're always trading up, and then you're just doing shots and shots and everything like that. But that next morning, I walked into the cave and I could hardly see, and I put my head down on the table, and the the baby dog comes up saying, "What's going on, Barbara? Like, uh, I'm dying. Help me." She's like, I can't. What do you want me to do? You're hungover. Say, help me. Like, stick a needle in my arm and fucking fix me. Well, I don't. I don't think I can. Well, if you can, pipe me. And piping means putting a PA uh, announcement over the boat. About an hour later, I'm sitting in a corner, curled up, trying to hide from the world. And all I hear is, uh, I think at that point it was the leading seaman barber, sick bay. I was like, (laughs) just. I ran down to sick bay, and she's like. I'm chalking this up to a training exercise. I'm going to hook you up to an IV and pump you full of saline. I was like, <laughs> fuck yeah. It took her two tries, uh, two or three tries to get my vein. But I sat in there, hooked up the IV. They, uh, everyone was walking in for the next hour or two, like, hey, what are you in here for? I was like, oh, uh, uh, training <laughs> exercise. I, I'm good. And then, yeah, sure as shit, we went. We won, uh, we won volleyball and hockey for Canada that, that, that day. It was, it was a great day. But, Come uh, on. Well, you're a great blocker. Oh shit! Uh, yeah, no, like the medics on the fucking boat. Uh, we have 220 sailors going in the foreign port every like week or two. Those sailors are going out and they're having a fun time. So that means every week or two, there's a lot of sailors in line trying to get some things checked out, and that poor baby doc has to check out every single sailor. Talk about PTSD. That those. Poor baby docs. They, God bless them. They, uh, <laughs> they have to see a lot of things. And, uh, so, so, so be clear by, by baby doc, he means there's, there's physicians, assistants, there's doctors, and then there's the paramedics. So yeah, a baby doc is a paramedic and they're the ones that are attached with, you know, these guys so, on the boats or yeah. us in the, in the platoons. They're the ones that are uh, doing all the inspections and handing out the penicillin after every port. So, <laughs> so god bless them yeah they uh they deserve every uh every ounce of uh honor that they can get for sure that's incredible so so i gotta know so you've told us some amazing stories uh about your experiences so i gotta ask nick i'll start with you what's what is nick barber up to now what's uh what's what's the next chapter look like yeah so right now uh I was uh, I was actually supposed to be in Toronto this year uh, for uh, to do uh, staff college. So it's yeah, boo to that. What the hell happened? We were supposed to hang out. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so uh, for officers, uh, once we hit the rank of major, if uh, if uh, your branch sees you having the potential to advance beyond that rank to lieutenant colonel and beyond, uh, they send you to the staff college. Uh, the Joint Command and Staff Program, JCSP for short, which is basically a, a military master's degree. So it's a master's of defense studies. It's a one-year program where your job is to go to school. Uh, so it's meant to be a residence program where uh, 120 officers from across the Canadian Armed Forces are there doing the course, as well as officers from uh, other allied uh, nations that uh, you know we do exchanges with. So so that was the plan, uh, but due to COVID, uh, they ended up switching it to a completely online distance learning uh, program for the year. So I've been uh, sitting in the basement day to day, doing a whole bunch of reading and online lectures. Uh, I'm learning a lot, so it's it's good that way. But uh, uh, personally, I would have preferred to have been able to do the residence portion because uh, there's some very good people on this course. And uh, even though we're, we're making some good contacts, uh, you know, it's a little harder to do when you're not face to face. Same question to you, Chris. What's next for Chris Barber? 
Uh, yeah, so I got out of the military in 2015, as I'm pretty sure you guys know, and then uh, did the oil rigs thing. And after that all fell through with the pipeline and they got all sketchy, I got a letter to join the Navy again. So I joined up as a, well, you know, make good money again. And uh, with the, the way that the oil rigs were going, it just seemed like the right time to go back. So I came back and I got on my first boat and uh, it turned out that all my apprentices were now my bosses. And I was like, well, shit, I can't deal with this. So uh, the only safe haven that I had was submarines. So <laughs> I, because uh, nobody wants to go somewhere. You on subs. That's great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, no, I, I, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting place to be. It's mm-hmm. definitely a lot harder um it's small it's cramped there's no private zero privacy uh if you guys ever get out to victoria i'll give you a tour if this covid shit ever ends uh and then you'll you'll actually get an appreciation for it but uh so no i uh as soon as i got back in i went out to halifax for three or four months did my naval uh, my uh basic submarine qualification i came back to the boat finished a giant i think it was 1300 uh, uh, skill set uh, package that I need to accomplish. Once I finish those 1300 skill sets, now I'm just waiting for uh, time at sea. So we're getting the boats up and ready, uh, hopefully for before the end of the year. If not, maybe the new year, I'm not sure. But uh, we're working to get to, towards uh, sea time again, and we'll be underwater here soon. Well, are you ready for the worst transition of all time? Because that was incredible and i really want to thank both of you but this is a sports podcast so it wouldn't be right if we didn't ask you both about a little bit of sports okay so nick i'm going to start with you i know you're a big leafs fan so let's start here they have been very active this offseason i can't i even i don't even feel right asking you about the leafs after this you guys were incredible but they made a lot of serious additions this offseason. They added Wayne Simmons, Joe Thornton, TJ Brody, Zach Bogosian, Jimmy VC. What excites you the most? Honestly, boys, I think the thing that excites me the most is just another kick at the can. I think TJ Brody was a great addition. Uh, they they needed to do something with the back end. Um, but, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you guys, like, as I'm sure you guys know, though, like it's, it's such a crapshoot every year, right? There's 31 teams, soon to be 32. They're all trying to win. So, you know, like we just saw it this year. Uh, you know, last year, Tampa Bay lost in the first round. They win the cup this year. Uh, Swept, yeah. Right? The the Blues won the cup last year. Out to the Canucks in the first round this year. You know what I mean? So the, the parity is incredible. So, like, you know, even though you look at it and say, okay, there's a one in 31 shot, it's like the the difference between winning and losing is so small that it, it's so hard to call. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy with what they did in the off season. I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, having some guys like Joe Thornton on the team now, like maybe he can, uh, you know, get all these young guys pulling in the same direction. Um, but, uh, you know, even when, even when things go right, it only takes one thing to go wrong and it's game over. Right. So. Well, before we throw to Chris, I have one simple question for you. By the way, I love, sorry, I, sorry, sorry, sorry. The optimism is, I, I love that. We need yeah, more of that in our lives as Leaf fans. That's it is Leaf such Nation. a dumpster fire so much of the time that any time, here's what I'm going to say. To anyone who is a Leafs fan out there listening, call Nick. He's going to make you feel better about it. It's like having someone tuck you in and I read you a story because it does not get better than that. If anyone can have, if anyone can have sand in every orifice of their body and still be optimistic about the Maple Leafs, you can be optimistic. So, Nick, is this team better now than they were when they lost in Game Five to the Columbus Blue Jackets? I 100% think yes, they are better today than they were when they lost to the Blue Jackets. And to be fair, to be fair, they were they were a dumpster fire against the blue jackets so to not be better than that would be no bueno so yes i think nick is correct that they are better but again i wasn't going on too much than, of a yeah being better wasn't than going garbage. on too much of a limb <laughs> <laughs> so chris I, I i gotta ask you man i gotta ask you so i hear you're quite the football fan 
big red zone guy, big fantasy guy. He's got a so one thing I gotta ask you. I've heard some I've heard some rumblings of your various your various rules and the things that you have your league mates do for things like draft order and things like that. Can you tell us a story? Um, hopefully one that, that is, you know, acceptable for airwaves uh, about something <laughs> that you've done as commissioner that is sort of outside of the box. Well, I will preface this by saying that uh, I'm no longer commissioner because I lost uh, the last two years. Uh, we, so my buddy Escott has actually be uh, taken commissioner since he's won the last two years. The fuck, but uh, no. Uh, when uh, our first year or our second year draft league, uh, I think Nick was part of it. In the second year, I wanted to do something uh, something a little out of the box and fun. So it cost me like sixty five fucking bucks. But I went and I bought a bunch of crayfish from the pet store, and I uh, drew a big circle on the on the ground on, on the floor. And I put them all under a bowl, and then I live fed. Uh, I oh, well, and then I took the uh, that took the time to draw a number on every single crayfish's back, which is a pain in the ass. So I'm just yeah, I was gonna dick. say, how do you even do that? <laughs> yeah, so I draw a little number on every little fucking crayfish's back with a little uh, golden marker, and then we did a we did a shake of uh, the numbers, and we randomly gave a number to everybody, and then uh, I'll even send you a video of it if you guys want. But uh, yes. anyway. Uh, yeah, no, uh, three, two, one, go. And then we live fed it, and you just see all these little fucking crayfish uh, just start spreading out. One immediately, somehow, it's dead, but it just turns over on its back anyway. <laughs> it was alive and then decided to die at that moment and just flips over, and that's Nick's buddy Mitch's uh, crayfish for that uh, first year. And then, you know, it was just... Uh, it, it, I like making that's pretty amazing. I, 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 I called Uncle uh, I called Uncle Vince one year to try and get him to uh, let me paint a bunch of numbers on the pigs and have them do a pig race, but uh, he told me to fuck off. So I wasn't allowed <laughs> to do that. that year. Uh, but uh, you know, we're, we're 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 getting closer to what we want. So I'm thinking maybe next year, uh, bait fish and uh, and a fish tank, and see which fish get eaten first and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, well, uh, I have an I have an idea. Why not just let me shoot skeets? Just throw skeets and let me shoot and pretend that I hit them. And well, the, yeah, 100%. The, we, but we want the draft uh, order to be picked within like an hour or two. Right. But, yeah. Uh, one, <laughs> one. <laughs> we have two openings in our league. So I'm not, if you guys want to be in a fifth and sixth league, uh, maybe it might be uh, something you guys uh, might join in on. But uh, yeah, no. Well, uh, then, I, so. Th- then I gotta ask you, since since and, and by the way, no one out there can beat that. This is like an episode of the league all over again. So Sean and I in our last podcast, since it was the midway part of the season, we talked about um, some of the you know the main storylines we're sort of seeing in fantasy football land for this season. So I have to ask you, what is the biggest fantasy surprise this season? What players jumping out to you as? Maybe someone who slipped through your fingertips in the draft that is just really exceeding expectations. That's a quick question. I would say that I'm pretty pissed off that I uh, I, I let go of uh, uh, Tugo for uh, Miami there. I, mm. I'm pretty pissed off to let him off a little bit too early. But my biggest surprise, uh, shit, everyone's just injured. Like you can't. That, that's the biggest yeah. surprise of 2020 is that nobody's fucking right. staying. Like Chubb. He was my boy. You know, I got him, I got him late injured and then fucking uh, Barkley injured. Like everyone's in talk about upsets is, uh, is my boy Zeke. Uh, he's, he's dead in the water for the last three, four fucking games. He, he, he can't do shit. So I'm not sure, sure if that's the matchups or not, but uh, that being said, I, I think we need to touch on is uh, my boys, the Texans. I think they're going back to like, what, what, maybe you guys should tell me what the fuck they're doing because how do we get well, rid of clowny? Well, like, this is the thing. Of, how do we, we get rid we of We called this. We called okay. this early in the, we called this early in the season, Chris. And I know you listen all the time, so you would know this, but they <laughs> had an, they had an impossible schedule to start the season mm-hmm. and trading their best player Second probably wasn't player. in their best interest. Oh, so you're putting Deshaun, Deshaun Watson DeAndre. is the best player on Houston. Enough. 
Enough. Well, I understand. So let's pay him as much as Mahomes, essentially. And what? Just wait for rookies to come in and take, like, maybe we might get lucky with rookies. They didn't even trade them for fucking good picks. The Laramie Tunsil trade doesn't look great. Because the problem is, ideally what you do is you say, hey, it's a lost season. You tank it all the way to the bottom and use your picks. But you don't have them. They're all gone. Who, who, uh, Miami has them all. Who'd they just fire again? Uh, fucking uh, Bill O'Brien. O'Brien. Bill O'Brien. I wanted to say O'Reilly, but I knew that was wrong. Like, and now they're getting rid of Fuller. Yeah, well, I was hoping that he went to Green Bay, but he has been great. I, I have not been a Fuller fan. He has been very, very good. But we got to get to our last segment, here, boys. Yeah, we got to get to our last segment. It's quick hitters. And Nick, I know you listen, Chris. You'll figure it out. Quick hitters is very simple. We ask you. 10, roughly 10 questions. You can either answer, pass, say yes, no. Just answer the question. Very simple. And if you want Chris, to elaborate, you can. Yes. Chris, I'm starting with you. Kill one, keep one. Beer or whiskey? Oh, keep beer. All day. Kill whiskey. Yeah, well, is that what you're getting at? That that's right? what I'm getting at. You did it right. great. You did great. You did perfect. All right. All right, Nick, this one's for you. You can Speaking play one video game. Drink in a while. So, uh, <laughs> Chin chin. <laughs> I already finished my whiskey, Bella. We're getting there. We can. So, Nick, this one's for you. You can only play one video game for the rest of your life. Is it Legend of Zelda or Karina of Time or Legend of Zelda Breath in the Wild? Breath of the Wild, 100%. That stupid yeah, water dungeon in Ocarina just kills it for me. So, Breath of the Wild. All right. So, let, let's bonus question. You can only pick one game to play for the rest of your life. I know it's neither of those. What is it? Wait, who is that oh, for? Yeah. That's for Nick. Back to Nick. Okay. You know what? I I think it might be Breath of the Wild. Still? I think it is. It is. Yep. Okay, Chris, we're throwing to you. One game. One game. Can you pick one game that you would play? Oh shit. I uh, um. Yeah, honestly, Breath of the Wild still has it for me too. It's uh, it's good. Or uh, honestly, you know what? I, I I might switch that to Overwatch. That's a simple, great game, though. I love it. Yeah, I'll switch with that one. And, and Chris, and this, and this, you go ahead, Ian. Go ahead, Chris. This one's for you. Why does your brother insist on playing every single side mission when he plays a video game? So, for example, to listeners out there, Nick could be playing Grand Theft Auto where the purpose of the game is to do illegal stuff to get to the end of the game. And Chris would see the side mission where Nick. you help a homeless dude and he'd want to do it because he has to be every segment of the game. So Chris, I got to ask you, why does your brother insist on this? I think I had something to do when we were growing up. Uh, we were only allowed to have a chance at the fucking controller once Nick completed the game. And so just like uh, Final Fantasy VII, Way back in the day, I almost had it finally beat after three years of fucking playing the stupid thing. And uh, Nick's like, no, I, I got to keep on playing. I need more space on this one little 20 megabyte card so that I can continue on the missions because there's way too many save files that I need to fucking keep on saving. Nick has, and, you know, hey, chocolate up to being an officer. Uh, he was an officer in training back in the day. He needs to think about all the little fucking details. I just want to get to the finish line and get the job done, and then I can go to sleep. That's my—that's what I want to do, but uh, too, apparently, apparently not. So for well, for Nick here, but well, it drives me crazy as someone who spent a lot of Thursday nights playing video games with your brother, which sounds wild as two people in their thirties. But hey, you know what? Couple uh, couple drinks, in, you know, you'll have yeah, a good time. But, uh, also, the uh, <laughs> yeah, you kind of needed a lot of help, uh, apparently, for. Well, I when I when I was when I was eight, I was trying to ask you for help, and you didn't know shit. But we didn't have cell phones. I can't call Nick. Anyways, we're not. We're gonna stay on your family because this is actually part of it. So let's stay on your family because you guys are very impressive in your own right. But your sister is actually, is actually a member of the Air Force. Your brother is a father and an electrician. So you know, four members of the family all just serving their communities or serving their families to the best of their ability but nick i gotta ask you you got a time machine okay your dream has come true you have a time machine 
You can go back in time knowing everything that you know now, but you can only join the Navy or the Air Force. What are you choosing? Oh, Air Force, 100%. The only, uh, Force. The only, the only stars the Air Force sleep under are five stars, uh, five-star hotels. I'd be a pilot in a heartbeat. Even though you can't drive? That could be a problem, but uh, there's, that's why they have autopilot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, Chris, same question to you. Back in time, can't be in the Navy, Army or Air Force. Oh, fuck yeah, Air Force. 100% Air Force. ASOP, yeah, just fly around, look at the screen all day. Oh, yeah, 100%. Air Force is where it's at. Paid hotels, paid everything. They got a good life. They got a good life. Plus, big chick jig pilot wings, right? So It's uh, (laughs) It's just Tom Cruise out here, 5'2 to 6'8. And and to to clarify, though, they're, they're... there are helicopters that are actually on the ships with Chris. So they, yeah, they're part yeah, of the crew. And they they fly missions. My career, yeah. Not on the subs though. <laughs> <laughs> so this one is going to be for both of you, but Nick, you go first and Chris, you follow. If you could pick one place and that can be in any branch of the military in general, if you could pick one place to be stationed, for the rest of your life outside of Canada, so you can't pick home, where would it be? Nick, you go first. Ooh. You know what? Honestly, I haven't uh, haven't had an opportunity to see, like, I absolutely love Costa Rica. So if, if there was ever an opportunity to go hang out in Costa Rica, <laughs> sure, let, let's make it happen. Love um, it. But uh, as far as, like, some, some realistic places, like, I, I was, uh, until this uh, course that I'm on now was an option, I was actually offered a, a spot in Italy. So something like, you know, there's, there's embassy jobs and stuff like that, that we can get as we get higher in rank. So uh, lots of cool places in Europe. And uh, so like Chris said, I haven't really gotten to travel uh, too, too much. Uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan isn't exactly a place I'd like to hang out for too much longer. So uh, <laughs> all, right. all, all for trying to see what, uh, what else is out there if the opportunity arises. All right, Navy man. Uh, yeah. Uh, Crete Greece was definitely Crete Greece. hundred percent was my favorite port of all time amazing amazing port Seychelles Africa amazing port but as mm. for where we can actually be oh, shit I'd love us uh, so uh, any Commonwealth country Australia if I could join the Australian uh, sub fleet that would be that'd be where it's at going to just living outside of Perth fuck yeah that's I think that's that, that might be the next place so okay Another so question. i gotta follow up with you then i gotta follow up with you then though so when you when you pulled into port what is the place that you looked out and were the most flabbergasted by where you were what place took your breath away when you pulled in hawaii is pretty cool when you when you're cruising up to hawaii it's uh just seeing all the islands and all that stuff that's uh that's pretty sweet Oh, but the most amazing. Oh, pretty. Uh, 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 Mali, the Maldives. Uh, that was mm. uh, that was probably the coolest. Just the water is amazing. All the little islands, fucking yeah. That Maldives, indeed. All right, all right. We got a couple more. By the way, these Nick, those are epic places. <laughs> Nick, wow. Nick, I'm throwing to you. You guys have both stationed with people who are not a part of the Canadian military. So, Nick. You are, you know, you're in, I don't know, recess. I don't know. You're, you're just not on duty. Okay. You're, you're, it's, it's time to go to the pub. What country of military are you most excited is there to party with you? Ooh, great question. Fantastic question, dude. And unfortunately (laughs) I have not done hardly anything international. So we make one up. I don't know. Is it, you know, (laughs) Okay, well, you, you know what? You may have to send it to so, No, I, I'm okay, sorry. Nick, I, no, I, I got to pass. So he, I got to pass. You got to go to Chris. He's, he's passing. He's missing hell. He's picking Halifax. Okay, Chris, since you've seen every country in the world, what what mil, what country's military are you most excited to be like, oh, I'm partying with these guys tonight? Oh, hands down, us and the fucking Aussies party hard. <laughs> or sidestep just slightly is uh, the Kiwis. Aussies and Kiwis, we get along real fucking well. We're, and to say the truth, Americans love us too. Yeah, but, but 
out of those out of those three Aussies and Kiwis for sure. Sorry, Nick. Tough goal. Tough goal, man. Ian, keep going. All right, Chris, you're on the spot again. Tell me, what is the Super Bowl matchup this year and who wins? (laughs) Texans all the way. (laughs) So what do you got to do? You got to win what, 10 in a row? (laughs) Shit. Super Bowl. I I couldn't even say what the matchup is. Uh, I would like to see that Pittsburgh's going to go, but I just saw fucking uh, Big Ben take a hobble COVID. there last week yeah so i don't know if that's did he get covid he got covid oh no no shit. he no no no. Oh, sorry he he's on the covid list someone who sorry, has COVID. sorry you're right you're right uh but honestly i really liked uh what fucking um oh shit who just played uh who just played fucking uh, uh, uh drew Brees and the uh the, saints the saints in the box yeah mm. i Crushed think I think they're going, man. Like, fucking Tampa just got spanked. I've never seen him just so – that was bad. That was that was horrible to watch. Kind of felt bad. So, I don't know who they're going to play against, but I think the Saints are definitely going to be in the final. So you're thinking Pittsburgh, New Orleans. I like it. If that could like work it. out, yeah. Like well, speak, speaking of feeling bad, Nick, you're going into a shot-for-shot contest. Are you picking soldiers or sailors? By the way, alcohol, not weapons. I think no, that I, yes. needs to be made Sorry. clear. That needs to be made clear. Yeah, right. That's very right. different. I'm pretty different sure game. the army may win that one, unless he's shooting a freaking bazooka from the boat. Well, no, but the navy has the bigger guns. We've learned that tonight, Ian. But I'm, I'm just saying. Okay, agreed. so alcohol, whi- whiskey, shot for shot. Are you taking sailors or soldiers? Ooh, I would have to say I think the sailors get more practice. So. We we were dry for seven months in Afghanistan. Chris was complaining Ooh. that his rations of beer got cut down to two a day. So <laughs> that was quick for that phone call. <laughs> quick follow up: Are you calling in a civilian? Oh, for you? <laughs> for me? What do you mean? Who else? Yeah, can, 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 yeah. Can I do a phone a friend? Well, then, yeah. <laughs> fucking Pillsbury Doughboy. I think he's gonna come and win the fucking drinking competition with the military. Oh, all right, Ian. Last question. Let this boy. Okay, boys. Last one. So I got to ask, would you come on this podcast and do this with us again? See you next year. Yep, absolutely. This was a blast. Thanks for having us, fellas. Boys, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Again, thank you for all that you've done for our country. Thank you for what you continue to do. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good night. Thanks for the support, guys. Yep, cheers. Cheers.